Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. You all can have a seat. Good to see your smiley faces. Hey, um, before I dive in tonight, I, I would like to say this. In the past two weeks, uh, all the gear that we have, the lighting and all of that stuff, you guys have worshipped with that gear here. We've worshipped with that gear at Little Galilee. We've worshipped that gear at Wesleyan. We're worshipping with this gear back here. And it requires a lot of people to move all of that stuff. Can we thank all of those people? Because, yeah. <clears throat> Seriously, it's not a small undertaking to do all of that. And so a lot of you guys help with that. I just appreciate your effort in making all of that happen because there's a lot. Um, If you are joining us for the first time tonight, you are hitting the very last night of a series called Grace Leads that we've been been walking through together. Um, Next week, we're going to start something new, but, but we're capping this off tonight. And I mentioned this before, I don't often like, push you guys to, to go back on the podcast, and, but if you've missed weeks in here, they're important for you. I have, I've gone to a lot of effort to try to grab these, these, it's been a six-week series, but basically five pillars of the Christian life that if you ever in a space where you're like, I don't know what it means to grow deeper with the Lord, or, or maybe you're even discipling somebody, there's someone else who's like, hey, help me grow deeper, and you're like, I don't know how to do that in somebody else's life. Um, I'm trying to give you a playbook for that. I'm trying to give you a primer for that of understanding what it means for us to look more and more like Jesus without turning it into a curriculum. Because if you remember all the way back, we talked about there's a, mis- there's a mystery. It's mysterious the way the Holy Spirit works in us and grows us and makes it look more like Christ. And yet there's also a little bit of order to it. Those two are not in conflict with each other. They work together. Like a tree was what we talked about in that first week. It's organic, and yet there's some structure to it. And so this fills out what we have been talking about this. Grace, the love of Christ, what we would call the good news, the gospel. That is the core of our, of our faith. If your faith is a tree, grace, the love of Christ, that's the roots and it's the trunk. Everything flows through it. And the entire Christian life breaks if you find a different motive. If your motive is guilt, if your motive is fear, if your motive is, you know, uh, some sort of religious obligation that your parents set in you, that was part of your family, so you're like, I guess I better do that too. That'll motivate you for a little while, but not very long. And it is not the motive we're given in Scripture. It's certainly not God's motive. His motive is grace, and therefore ours is too. It sits at the center, the love of Christ. And when grace is central in our life, it redirects us and draws us into these other four areas. And what's cool about this, you guys, all of these are connected to a part of God's character. So when we talk about grace leading us to God's truth, we're really talking about his holiness. This is who he is, and he wants us to be like him, and so we imitate his holiness. You can't tell me that you are being drawn in grace and reject God's holiness and be like, no, I want to do my own thing. It doesn't work that way. As we grow in our faith, we're drawn to look more like him, which means his ways are higher than our ways. That's truth. Voice, this idea that God intimately loves us, that part of his character is love and that he loves the Son. I mean, he's connected with the Son and the Holy Spirit, this idea of the Trinity. They are community together. There's a tightness and intimacy there. He wants to feel that with us as his sons and daughters. That's voice. When we get into community, there's this idea that we work we, we are the hands and feet of God to each other. We're connected to each other that way. So grace draws me to God's community. 
I'm not anti-church as a follower of Jesus. It's painful sometimes to see what the church chooses, to see how when brokenness enters the church. I'm not talking about endorsing all of that messed up garbage. What I am talking about is I cannot be drawn into grace and be like, God, I love you, but I don't really care for your bride all that much. It draws us into authentic community with each other, and we learn to be the church with each other. That's what community is. And tonight we get to mission, which I'm really excited about. We get, we get to this idea that my life has meaning and purpose that sits higher than what you see every day or maybe even what you've been told before exists in the Christian life. Now, if you're paying attention, perhaps you've started to look at this and be like, man, Ben, I don't know, isn't there a lot of overlap here? I mean, you talk about God's truth, and we're talking about that separately from his voice and separately from community, but sometimes don't you get God's truth through the community? Like if you have friends who are speaking God's truth into your life? Or doesn't that happen in moments of sweet prayer sometimes where the Holy Spirit begins to convict you? Sort of starts to feel like all of these are just kind of woven together into a tapestry. If you're starting to feel that way, good, because they are. They're a mess. They're this blanket that's all woven together. It's really difficult to dissect them and talk about each one of them because in a good, healthy, mature Christian life, these all start to blend together. And me searching out God's truth is connected to his mission and it's connected to his people and it's connected to his voice. They all start to form this weird tapestry together. And I hope that you sense more and more of that as we begin to walk through here, that, that overlap that sits between them. All right, so let's, let's get to mission tonight. Let's talk about mission. This is a big one. Um, I'm going to start off with a poem by Mary Oliver. She's an American poet, died in 2019, actually, just pre-COVID. And I'm just going to read the second part of this poem to you. She says this, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's the question that I want to put out there today. It's a question that Mary Oliver puts out to you from beyond the grave, interestingly enough, tonight. What is it that you want to do with your one wild and precious life? I don't think that we've done a good job within the church of inspiring you, that Jesus has swept you into a larger story that belongs to him. And you guys, I've struggled with this message tonight. I've struggled with it because it feels way grander than I can put words around, bigger than I can put words around. I literally have been praying and asking other people to pray, can you pray that the Holy Spirit would get past my words tonight? Uh, because it all just seems to paint it in too small of a light. But what is it, my friends? What is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Your generation is hungry for meaning and purpose. There aren't a lot of things that speak to that. There aren't a lot of promises for that. There's a lot of temporary distraction. There's a lot of how can we make your life better? How can we make you more distracted? How can we deal with the anxiety? But to actually peel back underneath that and say, does your life matter? Do the experiences that you have in this world mean something? Your experience in class, the the experiences that you grew up with, the pain that you've experienced, is it pointed somewhere? Are you just some 
cosmic accident that landed here and you're going to put in your time and just hope that things cruise by until you blink out of existence at some undetermined point. Like, real questions. Those are real questions. So there's a song for me. I, I don't remember when it was. It was a few years ago. I, was sitting, I remember I was sitting in a coffee shop and I was, I was, I think, writing a sermon and I had earbuds in, and Spotify was just kind of randomly spitting out songs for me, right, that it's, it's telling me I probably will like. And I'm, I'm sitting there uh, probably typing, and I, this song comes on, and it's big and open. There's a lot of music. There's actually even, like, symphony parts mixed in. And I was like, that's really pretty. And I'm, I'm working as I'm listening to this, and it took a while before the lyrics started. And the lyrics start... Uh, let, me, let me get them exact. I can get them close, but let me get them exact. Started with, I'm just a curious speck that got caught up in orbit. And like a magnet, it beckoned my metals toward it. I stopped typing, and I was like, man, those are good lyrics. That's thought-provoking. And then the lyrics that followed it were these. Make my messes matter. Make this chaos count. Let every little fracture in me shatter out loud. Song by Sleeping at Last. And I officially put away what I was working on, and I was like, okay, I'm going to think about that for a second. Because I feel like, man, that is the cry of my heart. God, I want to know that my messes matter in this life. I want to know that the chaos that I exist in, that it counts for something. I want that. You guys want that. The people who you're walking into class with want that. They're not sure if they have that, but they want that. And what we're talking about tonight, you guys, is right there. It's right there. God, does, does this chaos all matter? Do my messes mean something in the grand scheme? What are you doing in those things? How are you working? How do I understand all of this? So how Jesus lived his one wild and precious life clues us in to how we should be living our one wild and precious life because he's invited us into something way, way bigger than I think we often give him credit for. Partial truths, you guys, partial truths are really dangerous things. They're really, really dangerous. Almost more dangerous than a lie, than a full-on lie, because you can rec recognize the full-on lie. So to give you like a partial truth, you know, if, if, if we're on an airplane and somebody is like grabs their chest and falls to the floor and they're dying of a heart attack and somebody yells out like, is there a doctor on board? And you're like, I am, in fact, a doctor, right? But if your doctorate is in, like, Egyptian archaeology, okay, that matters in that moment that you're like, actually, I am a doctor, okay? And if you walk over and whisper in that dude who's struggling for life, Egyptian archaeology, he's going to be like this, don't, this matters to me. If I, you know, drive by your house and accidentally hit your garage door, and then drive away, and I tell you later, hey, I was driving by your house today, and I, somebody hit your garage door, all right? It's a partial truth. But, like, I've hidden, the, I've, I've hidden a very crucial point in there, right, that I had something to do with the garage door being hit. When we talk about meaning and purpose in life, I feel like as the church, and I'm going to put myself in, in this camp of being blamed for this, as the church, when we ask the question, why are you here on this planet, and why did Jesus come to this planet? I mean, this, this grand question that we'll get to, what was Jesus' purpose here? I think we've given you a partial truth. I think we often preach a partial truth. And it's a partial truth that's damaging, 
because it shrinks your understanding of who Jesus was, and it shrinks your understanding of why God put you on this planet too. I think the, the verse that we love to quote when we talk about this was Jesus said himself. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10. It's a beautiful mission statement. I mean, you can't get around that one, right? But understand that when we just grab on to that one verse, because Scripture's big, Jesus talked a whole lot more about his purpose than just that. When we just look at that and say, oh, he came to seek and save that which was lost, it gives us that understanding that our mission in this world is evangelism, so I should tell other people about Jesus, right? Or the idea is that I should accept Jesus, that that's the, that, why, you know, if you say, well, why should you go to church? And you say, well, personal salvation. I want, I think that you should and I should accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That's great. But once you've done that, if you do that at age 20, you have 65 more years to live on this mud ball. So are we saying that the grand purpose in life is just to exist after we've given our lives over to Jesus and maybe do evangelism along the way somewhere so other people hear that too and just endure for 65 years until sweet relief takes us home? Like what a small view of our lives. It's partially true. Jesus did come to seek and to save that which was lost. He did come to give us salvation and to, to free us. But you guys, there are other verses that expand this just a little bit. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says in John 8 that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, that that's one of the reasons that he came. Does that grow things just a little bit? Now we're not talking about a life of just, oh, I get saved. Now we're talking about a life that uses words like abundance and freedom. Do you remember what the Holy Spirit brings in our life? Joy, peace, and a kindness, and a gentleness, and a patience. He does things in our character. He grows us. You were not called to just give your life over to Jesus and endure for 65 years and hope you, hope you can make it through all the suffering until you die. There can be suffering, but within that suffering, there is abundance. There is freedom. There is peace. There is joy. There's more. I could, there's more. These other verses, just direct quotes. Jesus came to serve. He came to give his life away. He came to testify to the truth. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to be a light in the dark world, to call sinners to a new way of life. All of those things are part of Jesus' mission statement. But I want you to hear this. This idea that Jesus was just here to cross that line so that you would cross the line is a partial truth. And what we are living for in mission for Jesus is so much bigger than that and grander than that. Jesus had way more to say about who we were. So you say, okay, Ben, so you're saying that we're not supposed to do evangelism? No, no, we absolutely are. I mean, we're supposed to, if we are infected by this love of Christ that we have, we can't help but give that away to other people. Of course that's what we're supposed to do. It's just not, the way that we think about evangelism needs to change. You guys, this isn't just a part of your life. It's your, it's your whole self. This idea that when you offer yourself over to God, that everything belongs to him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, and the old is gone, and the new has come. That means that he's redeemed everything about you. 
It means there's a new priority system that exists in your life. It means, I mean, I say it all the time, you guys, Jesus didn't come to make you 10% more moral, or he didn't didn't come so that you would watch 5% less porn, all right? He came to do a full-body transplant on you. You're a different kind of human being. If If you give your life over to Jesus, he transforms you from the inside out. That's who you are. It's not just a little piece. It's the whole thing, a full-body transplant. So let me draw us out for a second. Let me zoom way out. We're talking micro. Let's go, let's go back to the, the macro story, all right? You see these icons on the screen all the time. I preach from them. I, this is the beginning to the end of the story in Scripture that we have. So let me just for a second cut out the middle, <laughs> and let's just take a look at the beginning and the end. You remember our creation narrative, right? where God creates all of this stuff in his creativity and in his wisdom. He pours all of that out into creation. But mainly us. He truly pours his image into us. We are are made to be like him. Now, something super interesting that God does for us is he says what we call sometimes the great mandate. He says, you are to rule over the earth. Like he gives Adam and Eve, they're supposed to name the creatures that are there. They're supposed to be caretakers of the garden. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He wants them to fill what's there. And so there's a partnership. That's what's crazy. God does all of this creation, and then he hands responsibility to Adam and Eve and says, no, you and I are doing this work together. You're doing this work together with me. You're to take care of the garden. And now you guys know the story, right? Genesis 3, we messed that up. <laughs> but, but that job doesn't end. He doesn't take that away from us. It's just broken and fractured and flawed. And he sends his son to redeem it, you guys, because that first garden doesn't look like that anymore. But our job doesn't end. Jesus came to do this redemptive work in the world, and we are called to that same kind of redemptive work in this world. I can't bring salvation to everybody. I can't do that but he's still partnered with me. I don't know why. You say, Ben, that sounds like a really bad idea. Does he even know us? It's like, I, I'm with you. You can ask him that question someday, all right? But Scripture's really clear. He extends this invitation to you. Well, that's the beginning of the story. The end of the story looks a lot like the beginning, though. Remember? There's a new heaven and a new earth. In essence, sometimes we call it the second garden, where God will remake and restore everything with us. He'll renew and redeem and restore what was there. Don't take my word for it. Let's take John's word for it, all right? In Revelation, I'm going to give you this. This isn't John, okay? But sometimes these phrases are used before I get to John. There's these phrases that are used that the end is contained in the beginning, or sometimes the beginning is pregnant with the end. I don't even know where that's sourced from. I tried to look it up. I don't know where it comes from, but I hear that phrase often. And we get that idea in our story, that the end, the picture that we have in Revelation is contained in the beginning. That picture in the garden, we will see it again when God will be with his people. Listen to the way that John describes it. I saw the holy city, this is in Revelation, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He'll live with them, and they'll be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. 
And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, behold, I'm making everything new. Kind of sounds like the beginning. That second garden that God is taking us to. He'll fully cleanse and redeem and restore. Sin will hold no more power, no more death, no more tears, none of that. None of that. Now, the two things I really want you to notice in this, the first, I'm just going to dance past because we've been talking about it for weeks, and that is just how God is present. He's absolutely present. God will be fully with his people, fully with. I mean, he's with us now, but there will be no bail, no veils, no barriers that sit between us, okay? Fully present. Can you imagine? But that one we've talked a lot about, so I'm going to kind of dance past that one, and we're going to go to the second one. The second one is that all things will be made new. What if I told you that in this life, you've actually, most of you, not all of you yet, eh, most of you though, you've had a taste, you guys, of heaven. You've tasted it. I think we get to in this life. There are things that you have seen, relationships that you've had, like friendships that you've had where you've experienced deep intimacy and love and friendship. Some of you have experienced that. That's We're told in James that every good and perfect gift that we experience in this life comes down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. That's James 1.17, right? So everything good and beautiful, that sunset that you experienced that was like worship, where you're like, man, I feel like I'm with creation right now, like we're all singing the same song. You experienced a gift that God gave you in that moment. Really cool moment with your family, where you're like, man, I just, we are connected right now, and I truly feel like, I feel that connection with my siblings or with my mom or with my dad. That's a taste of heaven, you guys. And you also have tasted hell, probably, in this lifetime, too. I've seen it in divorce. I've seen it in cancer. I've seen it in sick kids. I've seen it in friendships that are being destroyed over gossip. You name it, I I feel like, I mean, other people have experienced more than me, but I've walked through my share of hell. And I say that quite literally in this life, and I've tasted it. And I've tasted enough of both to know I don't want anything to do with the absence of God. I can't imagine a hell worse than removing everything good and beautiful off of this planet and letting it spin. Can't imagine it. To be without God's presence, to be without the gifts that he gives us. You've tasted both, I think. And God says, I am working this place toward a different kind of destination. I'm working this place toward redemption. There's a work that I want to do in it, he says. All right, so this is a little bit of a confession. Um, Some of you know this about me. Do you know how uh, if there's stuff on the side of the road that people have like, you know, they moved out of an apartment and they stacked a bunch of stuff there and cars will slow down and be like, huh, do I want any of that stuff? That's me, you guys. I'm one of those cars that slows down. Anybody with me in that? Okay, a few of you. It's all right. Hands high. You don't have to be sad about this. I want to be clear about something. I don't want junk. I have, I have plenty, okay? And I don't want more. I don't want to take stuff home that I'm going to have to sell in a garage sale in three months. That's not what I'm talking about. I have an eye, though, for stuff that has value. And here's what I mean. Like, Again, I'm going to be vulnerable for just a second because now I'm going to talk about lawnmowers, all right? (laughs) This is one of the hardest things for me to drive past on the road without taking home, and here's why. 
Because 95% of the time, somebody will buy a lawnmower, and they're not cheap, three, $400. They'll use it for two or three years. It will not start some spring, and it will make somebody crazy because they'll sit and crank on it and crank on it, and their hands will get blistered, and they'll be swearing at the thing. And finally, in a fit of rage, they will wheel it out to the front because they don't know how it works. And they will put it on the curb and be like, I'm done. And that's the moment I drive by, and I'm like... <laughs> Because there's a good chance that there's a $4 part wrong on that thing. And, and if you clean it up, you have a $400 lawnmower. I mean, I, again, I'm not young, you guys. I've probably owned a dozen lawnmowers in my life, like riding lawnmowers. I can tell you to this day, I've never yet paid for a lawnmower. Both. Yeah, that's worthy of applause. Yeah. So, like... And I'm pretty sure the campus house's lawnmower is also one of those, okay? I have, I have people in town who'd be like, dude, I saw a mower, so I picked it up for you. And I'm like, ah. Oh. My wife groans, and I am very happy at that, okay? But it's not just mowers. I mean, like, if I drive by and somebody put a big dresser out, okay? And I don't, I don't want the Ikea dresser that's been used for six years and that some kid has just destroyed. I'm talking about a full wood solid dresser that somebody put a really nasty coat of paint on. All right? But with a, in a couple hours' work, a four or $500 dresser that doesn't look like that, it just needs some restorative work, is sitting on the curb somewhere. Those are the things that catch my eye when I'm driving by. All right? Our God is the best recycler ever. He sees value. Randy talked about it at the, at the retreat. I mean, the example that he gave was if I, if I took a $100 bill and I... I you know, slid it in the mud, and I, you know, was like, hey, do you want this? You'd still be like, yes, I do want that, because the mud hasn't changed the value. Put dog crap on it, it doesn't matter. You might not want to hold it at that point. It still holds its value. Our God looks at this world, and he can see past the sin. He looks in your life, and he can see past the layers and the garbage and the pain, the stuff that you've done to yourself and the stuff that's been done to you. He sees you. He looks at our world and the brokenness that sits in our world, and he sees past it to the creation that sits underneath it that he made. Just like those of you who've been around, right? Like, you've been around on this planet enough right now that even though it's February and the grass is all brown and the trees are all bare, you still know that creation sits underneath that and that spring is coming. Now, I woke up this morning, seriously, birds, I heard birds singing in our yard. And I was like, it's a little early, you guys. <laughs> a, little, a little early for that. But there's whispers. There's whispers of creation that sits under the ground that wants to come back alive. And God sees past all of this garbage in our world to what sits underneath it. And spring is coming, he says. It's coming that he will remake and restore and renew. That's who he is but that's who you are. That's where we have short-sold you. That's also who you are. He's put that same mind in you. He's, he's put that same creative vision in you to be able to look around at each other in the room and say, oh, I see. I see redemption and restoration in that person's story. Man, it's hard to see right now. There's a lot of layers of old paint on them. There's a lot of stuff that's been done to them but I see it. That person is a carrier of the image of God, and he wants to come alive in their life. You guys are walking around constantly restoration projects that, guy is, that, that God is at work in, 
and you and I are blinded to it, and we need his eyes to realize that's the mission that he's called us to. Not just, how do I open my mouth to tell my roommate once about Christ? No, yes, but also, do you have the eyes to realize he wants to remake all of it, and the artist himself is handing you the paintbrush and saying, paint with me, paint with me, You get to do that. You get to change the course of human history. You get to be a partner in the great restoration of all things. Maybe you didn't hear me. You are a partner. This is what you have been invited into in the great restoration of all things. Now, can we do that in fullness? No. No, God will do that in fullness. We do it in part. There's a a verse in... uh, Corinthians. I've kind of jumped away from my notes here. Let me, <laughs> I don't know where it's at in Corinthians. Oh, here we go. First Corinthians thirteen twelve. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It's First Corinthians thirteen twelve. The old King James said, now, right, like right now, I see through a glass darkly. That's what the world feels like now. It's hard sometimes to feel like you know God. Paul is telling you that won't always be the case. When we are with him, we will fully know him just as we are fully known by him. Can you imagine? But this redeeming and restoring that's so close to God's heart, you guys, that's who you are. It's who we're called in Scripture, right? Psalm 107, 2 and 3 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's my title. I am the redeemed. I am the old mower. I'm the dresser that God looked at and was like, ah, there's value there. I see it. I want that. And every person you walk by is a vessel carrying the glory of God in them. Every one of them. I don't care how they identify. I don't care what they they look like in terms of, ah, that person sits on the other side of the political spectrum from me. Ah, that person represents something I hate. You guys, not to the creator of the universe. They are a bearer of his likeness, his image. Every human you walk past, every human you dismiss, every human you rage against, you're meant to be a part of their redemption story, as well as the earth that we sit in. Now we do it in part, and at some point he will do it in full. But you are a part of pushing back the darkness, okay? So let me give you this promise that I think speaks more to this than anything else in Scripture. I love it. I talk about it all the time. It makes its way into my preaching very often. But the Romans 8.28 promise, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. Man, these are the tools that God can use. We know that in what things God works? Uh-huh, let me, re- let me hear you. How, what things? Right, so I need you to understand that is unconditional in this verse. There is a condition in this verse. It is not that. The condition in this verse is that this promise is for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. This promise isn't for everybody. If you're like, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with God. This promise isn't for you. For those who respond to God's love and say, yes, grace, grace, I am a grace person. The love of Christ is what leads me. God does this. He's like, then let's go because I can take all things in your life and work them toward my purpose. 
And I'm not being flippant with this, you guys. In our group, we have had people who have been sexually assaulted and abused. And I don't believe that God wanted that for them. I don't. It's a product of sin and brokenness and darkness in this world. But I have watched God turn it when they've submitted it to him. I've seen people who've undergone... I mean, there was a woman I shared the stage with years ago who was dying of cancer. I asked her to come in and speak. This has been three or four years ago. She's passed away now. But she said, the night that she was here with our students, she said, when I look at all that God has done in my life because of the cancer, if I had to go back, I'd choose cancer. And it was like, what? Seriously, I was like, you're going to have to explain. You're going to have to explain to the rest of us what in the world you're talking about. And she said, as as I have had to come to grips with that, he has restored my kids' lives. Like, that has brought healing in our family. It's brought healing with my ex-husband. It's done all of these different... He said, my life... She said, my life was moving away from God, fractured in a hundred different directions, and that forced all of us back to him. And she said, I don't believe God caused it, but I believe he used it Some of you have done things to yourselves that are just sad and hard. God can take those and use them. Some of you have had things done to you that are sad and hard. God can take those things and he can use them. He doesn't waste an ounce of where you've been and what you're doing in the great restoration of all things. So you put that stuff on the altar and say, all right, God, I don't like this about my past or I don't like this about my personality or I don't even fully understand this. And he's like, it's okay, all things for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. How could you lose? <laughs> I mean, how can we lose when the God of the universe is like, man, you give it to me and I'll take whatever it is and I'll use it for my purpose. I will use it. And so it's so crazy and beautiful to watch Jesus through the Gospels. You read in, you know, in the book of John and you see him just <laughs> sitting with prostitutes that didn't scare Jesus away. Sitting with tax collectors, corrupt businessmen, that didn't scare Jesus away. Sitting with these broken people who the religious people around him were like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And he's like, why do you think that I'm here? What do you think that I'm doing? These are the people who get it. These are the people who know they need restoration and redemption. These are the people I want to hang out with. Do you understand that your story is swept up into his story like that? That's where I'm saying we've sold you short. We have told you that the Christian life is about you receiving Jesus. And that's like showing you the front door. Now, I mean, I I know this is a ridiculous analogy. I don't know how many of you have seen the original Annie movie, okay? This isn't in my notes. This is just bonus tonight, okay? This, This is just in my brain for whatever reason. There's a scene I will remember forever in that movie. Annie, if you don't know the story at all, she's this orphan, um, comes out of a terrible situation, and all she does, she's basically Cinderella, like she just slaves away all day. And then the, the adoptive parent, is it, is it Daddy Warbucks? Okay, Daddy, so big bald guy who's unbelievably wealthy comes in, and she is allowed to go visit his mansion. And this is what I, I, I you guys, I shouldn't be... <laughs> I shouldn't even be explaining this because this is the only piece of the movie that I even remember. But I remember that she walks into this mansion and it's unfathomable for her. 
And one of the women there says, well, Annie, what do you want to do first? And she, the only thing that she can even think to respond is, well, first I'll do the windows, and then I'll do the floors, because that way if I drip, so like she assumes she's there as the maid. She can't fathom that she's there as a child. I feel sometimes like that's the invitation that we've given you to the kingdom. Well, you can have heaven, and you're like, oh, okay, that's all right. <laughs> and it's more than all right. But you guys, God has swept you into his story and said, no, 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 no. You get to be a part of creating this with me. You're co-creators in a new world. Not on his level. Don't get me wrong. He's a better painter than you or I will ever be. But for whatever reason, the God of the universe, who's an unbelievable creator, has put that same spirit of redemption and restoration in you. He wants to redeem your story and my story and our story. And so it is such short selling to tell you, Jesus should be a part of your story. No, 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 no. You should be a part of his story. That's a way better invitation. He is doing an unbelievable work. He'll be doing it at Little Galilee this summer. And if you're working there, you will get to sweep these kids into a larger story that they'll be a part of and they'll never be the, they'll never be the same because of that. That's what's happening in your classes and on this campus. It means something. All of your life is spiritual then. When you realize it's all laid down, it means your classwork matters in the grand scheme of things, that he's doing a redemptive work in all of us. That when you aren't sinning, your life is an act of worship to him, every ounce of it. And our life gets wonky if we think that's not true. So this afternoon, when I went home in between work and now, and I sat and played kings in the corner, solitaire with, or it's not solitaire, with, with my daughter. That was a beautiful act of worship to my father. I didn't have to turn it into a Bible study, you guys. That was a beautiful moment that I got to share with her today, and it honored God to do that with her and just to listen to her talk and for her to ask me questions. And so your life just becomes a part of this redemptive work that God wants to do. And when we begin to see it that way, remember that question at the beginning? Make my messes matter. Does this chaos count? It does. My messes do matter. God can take them and turn them into something absolutely beautiful. I have meaning and purpose even in my pain. There's a quote, I'm reading a book right now called The Alphabet of Grace by Frederick Beekner. And uh, I came across this quote, and I want you to hear it tonight. It says this, Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and God said, Let there be light. Darkness laps at my sleeping face like a tide, and God says, Let there be Beekner. You understand what he's saying there? <laughs> Just like, let there be Ben. Let there be Tyler. Let there be Caitlin. Let there be Amanda. Let there be Sheldon. Let there be Angelo. Let there be Hannah. Why not? Out of the primeval chaos of sleep, he calls me to be a life again. Out of the labyrinth of selves, born and unborn, remembered and forgotten, he calls me to be a self again, a single, true, and whole self. He calls me to be this rather than that. He calls me to be here rather than there. He calls me to be now rather than then. He calls me to be of all things me, as this morning when the alarm went off or the children came in or your dream woke you. He called you to be of all things you. To wake up is to be given back your life again. 
to wake up, and I suspect that you have a choice always to wake or not to wake, is to be given back to the world again. And of all the possible worlds, this world, this earth rich with the bodies of the dead as our dreams are rich with their ghosts, this earth that we have seen hanging in space, our joy, our tomb, our precious jewel, our hope and our despair and our heart's delight. Waking into the new day, we are all of us Adam on the morning of creation, and the world is ours to name. Out of many fragments, we are called to put back together a self again, Beekner says. Do you catch a glimpse of what we're talking about tonight? That there is something in your life that grace draws us to that is a larger story than we've asked you to live before. A lot of people have asked you to live an uninspiring story. At the heart of the Christian life, you guys, we are drawn and swept up into the story of God who will redeem every broken piece and use it if you will allow it. If you will only put it on the altar, he will transform it. You can hold on to it. It'll stay just the way it is, just the painful thing it is just the talent that you have, just the experience that you have. But when you put it on the altar, he says, no, 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 I'll multiply it. You wake up today into a whole new experience when you are partnered with the great painter in the great restoration of all things. Paul would put it this way. He would tell you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So big. And I'm just barely able to get my arms around this tonight. Do you feel it? Do you sense it that this is what the God of the universe has called you to? (laughs) This is not showing up to church on Sunday morning. Is that good? Yes. This is not just trying to work up the courage to tell your, your roommate about Jesus. Is that appropriate? Absolutely, it is. But we are living into a larger story where God wants to see, wants you to see the redemptive, restorative, incarnational work that he is doing around you all of the time, and it makes your messes matter, and it makes your chaos count. One last note. Sometimes in the church, uh, we, we talk as if it is people like me, who I'm paid to do ministry, all right, that's my job, that are supposed to live that kind of a life or that are supposed to be a part of that redemptive work. You know, Max runs a camp, so of course he's supposed to be doing that stuff all the time, right? Oh my goodness. L-Ed teachers in here? Any of you? Okay, listen to me. You will have kids in your classroom where you will be the only voice of love they hear in a day. Don't you for a minute tell me that my job is to do ministry and your job is not. You are the love of Christ represented incarnate in your classroom. Do not think that God has let you off the hook because you don't work for a church. Like, that's just a ridiculous concept. That restorative work that he wants to do will happen in your classroom because the love of Christ is there in the classroom flowing through you, Christian. And you tell me a major that he can't use. Actuarial science, he'll use it. Marketing, he'll use it. Communication, he'll use it. Business, he'll use it. This isn't for a few You guys, this is for every follower of Jesus Christ. These promises are true for you, and you become a missionary in the space that you're headed out to. I'm not up here to try to convince you to go into ministry. I'm telling you wherever you go will be ministry, 
and the Holy Spirit needs your work there. He has swept you up into that larger story to use you. And if you think your future family doesn't belong to him to be used in that way, you think wrong. You're thinking too small and you're worshiping too small. His story is bigger. His redemptive work is bigger. What he wants to do in your life is bigger. This is a picture of the Christian life. You guys, in the beginning of grace, we understand that we are seen, remember? And we are known, and we're forgiven, and we're loved, that we live in that reality. And as we follow his truth, and we listen to his voice, and we're connected to his people, and we're swept up into his mission, you're living so much better of a story where even in the pain, you're like, God, I see what you're doing. And I pray that for you. Truly do. I pray that you'd be swept into something larger than the world you've been sold, even in the spiritual world, of that our, our little Christian lens is this. Jesus did come to seek and to save that which was lost. You should share Christ with your roommate. But that, that is the starting step to something so much bigger that I pray that you'll understand and you'll uncover as we continue to live into this truth deeper together. If you submit your life to God's story, that, my friends, is what you're swept up into. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org. Thank you.